This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with Austin McCormick, and we are at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary for their module on Benjamin Keach, and with us in this interview are Dr. Tom Hicks and Dr. Chris Holmes. Dr. Hicks, would you introduce yourself to those who are watching and listening? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm pastor, senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana. I've been up there about four years. I have my PhD degree from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in historical theology, and I'm married to Joy, and Joy and I have four children. And Dr. Holmes, would you like to introduce yourself? Certainly. I am Chris Holmes, and uh, like Dr. Hicks here, I graduated from Southern Seminary with a Ph.D. in Christian preaching uh, with a significant emphasis also in Baptist history. Uh, I'm married to Beth, and we have uh, one son, and I have recently uh, taken on the position as head of school for Grace Christian Academy, which is a new private Christian high school here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Austin, would you go ahead and start us off with our first question? Yeah, as Jimmy mentioned uh, in his introduction, our topic of conversation for this evening is Benjamin Keach. So uh, we'll go ahead and get right into our questions. The first one is for Dr. Hicks. Um, in Keach's trial through the pressure of Sir Robert Hyde, Keach was indicted for professing views that contradicted the Book of Common Prayer. Among one of his accusations was that he believed in a visible and bodily return to the earth of Christ for a thousand years. After the thousand years would be the final judgment, and Austin Walker alludes to the possibility of Keach changing his view on the second coming of Christ later in his life. All of this to ask you, what do we know of Keach's eschatological convictions? Yeah, it's a really an understudied area of Keach's theology, um, but the places, you get, he, he mentions that eschatology in various of his works, but probably the two main ones are the Antichrist Stormed uh, and also Gospel Mysteries Unveiled. And in those works, what you see is that he is a premillennialist, which means he believes that Christ will become, uh, return to the earth bodily and set up a millennial reign on earth over his people in his kingdom. Um, but Keach kind of had a unique perspective on this and that he came to believe through his study of Scripture that, uh, that the spiritual kingdom was established first and then Christ would return bodily uh, and continue in his kingdom that had already been inaugurated uh, spiritually. And it's sort of interesting, Keach believed that because of a very public defeat of Roman, Roman Catholics in England in 1688, uh, that Christ's spiritual kingdom had begun and that he was already living in the millennial reign. 
And so he believed that the physical, bodily return of, of Christ was very imminent. And so he had a way of you know, reading the scriptures that he, he identified, for example, the Antichrist would be Roman Catholicism. The little horn of Daniel was also uh, Roman Catholicism. The two witnesses of, uh, of Revelation are the faithful, uh, regenerate Catholic church through England who are fighting against uh, you know, the, evil, the evil forces. And uh, so that's his eschatology. And really, I, I'm not aware that he changed it. I don't know. Austin Walker may have seen something where he thinks that that might have been modified later, but I'm, I'm not aware of that. He, he really held this view when he was, he, he, we know he was still holding on to this view into his mid-40s. And um, I, don't, I don't know that he changed it. So, um, Dr. Holmes, talking about Sir Robert Hyde, um, first, before I ask this, the second part of the question, who was Sir Robert Hyde? And um, he accused Keech of being a fifth monarchy man. What exactly does this mean? Well, Sir Robert Hyde was the one who was involved in prosecuting not only Keech, but many other uh, Baptists and others during uh, the early part of the, well, really the middle part of the 17th century, and cer certainly trying to make an effort to show that the various acts of conformity that were required under the reign of Charles II uh, were observed. So uh, with Keech, he called him, as you said, a fifth monarchy man. And basically what that means is, is he was accusing him of being someone who was affirming uh, that the passage in Daniel chapter 2 that, was, that talks about the four kingdoms and then after that then Christ would come, he, he believed that, that Keech was, was one of the people that believed that the, the return of Christ was imminent and that he was uh, seeking to really be a, a radical, uh, seeking to be someone who was trying to be divisive uh, in that day and time. And so uh, the, the, whole, the whole point of, of what Robert Hyde was trying to do was, was simply to intimidate and hopefully silence Keech and keep him from being any more divisive in the community. Mm -hmm. Dr. Holmes, this question is again for you, and I think you made this reference earlier today. Um, Austin Walker describes Keech as a marked man by society in Buckinghamshire. Why was this so? What difficulties, afflictions, or persecution did Keech face in Buckinghamshire? Yeah. Well, certainly uh, Buckinghamshire is where Keech grew up, and that's where he spent all of his early life. And after he became converted and joined a Baptist church at age 15, was baptized with believer's baptism, he began to, to, begin, he began to preach and he began to, to exercise uh, his spiritual gifts and wanted to uh, demonstrate them before his fellow congregation and before uh, those in his community. And as he did so, uh, he also wanted to, to educate. He wanted to engage uh, people in every possible way with the gospel. And so he began to write, and he wrote a book called a, a New and Easy Primer, The Child's Instructor. And when he did this, he included in there not just the basics of typical childhood education, but he also talked in there about uh, the importance of baptism uh, by immersion as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, altogether contradicting uh, the, the, the belief system of the day of the Anglican Church. And along with that, uh, also expressing some eschatological, some millenarian views uh, that were very troubling as well. And so that got Keech into a significant amount of trouble with the law. And uh, he was persecuted uh, 
significantly. Uh, he had to stand in the pillory in both Aylesbury and Winslow for two hours each. He had his works burned in front of him. He uh, nevertheless used the opportunity to preach the gospel and to, to try to make very clear that, that he wasn't uh, doing anything other than what the Bible plainly said. And uh, so he used it as a witnessing opportunity. He used an opportunity to, to make clear that the Bible is authoritative in every way, and certainly when it comes to the ordinances such as baptism, the Bible's word is final. So he, he was not only persecuted in that way, but there were soldiers on other occasions who nearly trampled him to death with their horses. Uh, he, was, he was imprisoned many times, fined many times, uh, having to pay enormous sums in fines. And so just one thing after another just made him very well known, gave him a, a significant reputation in the community. And, and with some, I think they would have applauded him, but with many others, I think they were, were very concerned about him. And certainly uh, over time, he just really didn't have the freedom to be able to do what he wanted to do and felt like he needed to do something different. So ultimately, he moved to London so that he would no longer be so, uh, so visible and so, uh, so marked, as you said. Dr. Holmes, just transferring or, or transitioning to a slightly different subject of Keach, you've emphasized in the lectures how Keach really desired to reach um, the people who he ministered to. So how did Keach use different literary works to communicate to different audiences? Well, as I said a minute ago, you know, Keach really wanted to, to engage people uh, in a wonderful way. Uh, I really think teaching was a gift that God had blessed him with. And so, as I said, even from his 20s, he, he's writing materials to try to engage people with, not, again, not just with, with academic things, but with spiritual things, spiritual concepts and biblical principles. And so as he did that, uh, he, was, he knew immediately, uh, I think because he himself was the recipient of it, and so I believe he began trying to write using a variety of literary genre, literary types, to be able to engage different kinds of people who would respond well to those different kinds of literature. And so he, he wrote allegories, he wrote poetry, he wrote, as we said, an instructional book for children, he published sermons, he wrote other materials that were uh, at times polemical or were uh, just simply reference materials for preachers and pastors. He wrote just a whole host of different kinds of things to reach different kinds of audiences so that he could engage as many people as possible with the truth. This question also is going to transition to another topic. That's for Dr. Hicks. Uh, what do we know of Keech's involvement in the hymn singing controversy? Who was involved in the controversy? Why was there such great tension from opposing sides? What were the arguments theologically made for each side? And what does this controversy teach us about the character of the people that were involved within the controversy? Yeah, the, the hymn singing controversy was really a very difficult and bitter uh, controversy among particular Baptists in London and the uh, London Baptist Association, really. And the, the issue at stake was the regulative principle. The question is whether God institutes in New Covenant worship the singing of hymns by the whole congregation. That was the question. And um, up until Keach, most Baptists, particular Baptists, or did not do that. They didn't sing congregationally. But Keach began to teach that. Uh, he began to teach it from the scriptures. He taught it in his congregation. Other churches started doing it as well. But Keach was really the leader in teaching uh, churches to sing congregationally. And there was a particular opponent of this that 
arose. There were others, but Isaac Marlowe was a real uh, opponent of congregational hymn singing. And uh, his argument was that the New Testament never institutes the singing of hymns uh, in churches. And he would, for example, he cited Ephesians 5, which talks about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart. And so what Isaac Marlowe argued was that when it says singing and making melody in your heart, the and is just explanatory. So the, the way in which we're to sing congregationally is just to praise God in our hearts, and there's no institution of vocal singing. So that was the way that he argued. Uh, Keats responded, it was interesting, he, he responded at two levels. He said that um, singing is, is a part of moral law. He said it's actually attached to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that it's natural in the hearts of men. That uh, he, he even pointed out the fact that when people enjoy something, if they, whatever they love, they sing about. Children just spontaneously break out into singing. Uh, he tried to show that earlier on in the scriptures, even before there was any explicit command, uh, you, you have what looks like people are singing or, or implications that they were singing. You have Moses singing the song of Moses and the Israelites all singing before there's an explicit command to do so in the scriptures. And so the first level of Keech's argument was that it's natural law, it's moral law, it's part of the first commandment. But then secondly, he just completely disagreed with Isaac Marlowe's exegesis of Ephesians 5. And of course, he also used Colossians in the parallel text to say that clearly the New Testament institutes congregational singing. And uh, he has a whole book on this, uh, Breach Repaired, in, in God's worship, which is, which is excellent. It's still worthy of reading today. Um, so I would encourage you to read that. Uh, but as far as the, the conflict, what we can learn from it, these were brothers, and they really didn't conduct themselves well. Isaac Marlowe was a very bitter type of man. He, was, he, he employed kinds of attacks and used the kinds of language that Christians should never use. And Keach sometimes got into it too, and he responded with a little bit uh, more vitriol than he should have at certain points. He apologized for that, asked for forgiveness publicly in the association. But this breach was never really repaired. It actually ended up really hurting and ultimately destroying uh, the London Baptist Association. So, Keach once said, let me entreat you to study the nature of the covenant of grace. For until I had that open to me, I was ignorant of the mysteries of the gospel. So covenant podcast, covenant Baptist theological seminary. We like covenant theology. So what do we know of Keech's understanding of the covenant of grace? And when was it open to him? And then after you answer those, I can, I can ask some more questions. Okay. So. <laughs> well, Keech, one place you can see a concise summary of his view of the covenants is in his funeral sermon that he preached for Henry 40. And the sermon is titled The Everlasting Covenant. And his view of the covenants is that he says the Bible only recognizes two covenants. He says you won't find three. The way that he argued was there's, the, there's uh, the, the first and the second, the old and the new, and there's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And so he, he believed uh, that the covenant of works was made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, covenant of perfect obedience, that of course Adam failed and all of his posterity were cursed because of his sin. And then he said that the old covenant, meaning the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant 
were all like the covenant of works. They're, they're essentially a cov- covenant of works. And so that's all in his mind, covenant of works. That's the first covenant. The second covenant is the covenant of grace, which is an intra-Trinitarian covenant, which we may typically would call the covenant of redemption, but he saw it as the covenant of grace. And uh, he believed that the covenant of grace was made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with the elect in Christ. And so he did not see a separate covenant of grace. He saw that the new covenant was the historical manifestation and enactment of that historic eternal covenant of grace among the persons of the Trinity. So why did he do this? Well, what he was after really above all was that there are no conditions to get in or be in the covenant of grace or stay in it. And that, um, that the right to the inheritance of the covenant is also unconditional. And so some people would say, well, faith is a condition. You must believe to enter into the covenant of grace. But Keach said, no, faith is a blessing of the covenant of grace. It's actually a merit of, one of the merits of Christ. It's the reward of Jesus that Christ died for a people, and his reward is not just a people, but all the graces that are worked in that people. And so he, he made a strong case that these are really two parts of the same covenant of grace. And so then getting to why did he do this? What led him to this position? Viewing that the covenant of grace only includes free and gracious blessings and there's no conditions in it. It's that he saw that certain versions of Presbyterianism were slipping into neonomianism and some were fully neonomian. And what they did, the neonomians said in the covenant of redemption, Christ did his part. In the covenant of grace, you have to do your part. And so these two things together are what save you. Christ does his part in the covenant of redemption. You do your part in the covenant of grace. And Keach said that's really just popery and new dress. That's really just, it's Arminianism, and it's going back to uh, pre-Reformation. It's undoing everything. And he thought that the, the, the key to fixing that was the solution of combining and seeing the covenant of grace and the, and the covenant of redemption as one. Um, so... Um, with the hymn singing controversy, there was a lot of vitriol that, that happened as a result of that. Did Keats really receive a whole lot of pushback for, for what seems to be a distinct covenant theology, even from other particular Baptists at that, during that time? Um, there were differences among early particular Baptists. That's a good point. They did not all hold the view that Keats holds. In fact, some of them uh, were much closer to what, what Presbyterians hold today. Some of the Baptists were. So Keech's position wasn't monolithic. Uh, I know that there was, they, there was certainly disagreement among them and that he wrote and talked about it. They talked about it among themselves. But there was nothing like vitriol about it because you know, the central issues were, were not those things. It was really in his day, ecclesiology was what was being fought out the most even still among Baptists. So Baptists were battling over how to work out their ecclesiology, particular Baptists were. Hmm. Piggybacking off that a little bit, who were some of Keech's closest friends and what influence did they have on each other and on the broader particular Baptist movement? Yeah, well Keech had a number of close friends um, and he had wider relations as well, but I would single out a couple of his closest friends. Um, uh, William Kiffin and Hansard Knollis, I would say, were two of his closest. And uh, one of the places you can see this illustrated that are close to him 
is uh, before he became a particular Baptist, when he was still a general Baptist, he met a particular Baptist girl named Jane Grove, and he wanted to marry her. Or he, not, I mean, not, not immediately, obviously, but he, he was thinking, I'd like to get to know this girl. But she's a, she's a particular Baptist, you know. Uh, and so he, he wanted to work out this issue of soteriology according to W.T. Whitley. This is his account. So, you know, who knows if it's exactly right. But this is what the, the early historian says. Um, and he went, so, so Keach went to talk to uh, Hansard Nollis about, about soteriology. And Hansard Nollis influenced him along with William Kiffin, according to William, according to Whitley, to become Calvinistic in his soteriology, after which he did marry Jane Grove. Mm. And so that's one way in which there was an influence from his friends. Uh, but just, you know, just in terms of the wider influence of these friends in the particular Baptist churches, uh, Hansard Nollis was just a well-known pastor and preacher. He's, he was a signatory of the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, William Kiffin, though, was a much more prominent figure. He was very well known, not just among Baptists, but had lots of connections uh, among various denominations, as well as political connections. He was a businessman, a merchant, and he was known for debating publicly. So he defended uh, particular Baptist theology, the doctrine of baptism, very well as he engaged pedo-Baptists. And so those were his friends. I'm going to go off script here and ask a question that we, we did not send you. Um, so this could be either of you two can answer this question, or you both can. Is um, Sometimes when we, we read historical works, we can sometimes forget, or doctrinal works, forget that these were people that had lives, that had families. So would either one of you introduce us a little bit to Keech's family? And, and then also as a piggyback question... Um, I believe, and I could be wrong, you could correct me, I believe one of his children actually became a Quaker um, in his life. So could you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, well, uh, as, uh, as, as Tom said, um, uh, Keach not only had a, a wife who was uh, a particular Baptist, but also, but prior to that, he'd had uh, another wife uh, who had passed away about the time that he moved to London. So with this, this first wife, he had had some children, including his son Elias, who famously came to America before America was America, uh, came to Philadelphia and was very influential among the Philadelphia Baptists, uh, preaching and teaching. In fact, uh, if the story is accurate, apparently even came to faith under his own preaching in the pulpit when he was, I think, trying to impress, trying to, to show off a little bit, trying to uh, just, just really... Uh, flout his his heritage and his famous last name. So nevertheless, uh, Elias was, was very significant uh, and very helpful, not only for American Baptists, but then he moved back to London, helped his father, pastored alongside his father in London, not in the same church, but, but they, they pastored churches together and, and were, I think, very uh, successful in, in their ministries. You also have, uh, he also had other children, some of whom died in infancy or in young childhood, but he did have, indeed, a daughter who was a Quaker, and, and that was just really a, a great grief to Keach. Uh, not, and, and he, you know, Keach made every overture that he could to try to uh, encourage his daughter to, to, to relinquish uh, those, those convictions and, and to embrace, you know, a, a biblical Christianity. But 
as far as I know, he was altogether unsuccessful. Uh, I believe that she did visit him when he was on his deathbed, and I think they may have had a conversation or at least attempted to, but um, as far as I know, she never relinquished those views, to my knowledge. And uh, so he, he had a wonderful family. Uh, he had, again, several children, some of whom died, but uh, uh, he, his, own, his only son, Elias, passed away before he did. He died before Keach did. And so, so his name was not carried forward um, by any of his male offspring, but he had several daughters who were married to other prominent Baptists, married to Thomas Crosby, the Baptist historian, married to Benjamin Stinton, who was the pastor who succeeded him in the Horse Lie Down congregation. So, uh, so he had a, a wonderful family there uh, who supported him, loved him, cared for him, and uh, took care of him throughout his life. And Dr. Hicks, um, if Keach were alive today, what, what do you think he would say to many of the churches or Baptist churches and pastors? <clears throat> well, if, you know, if you think of Baptist broadly, largely, I think he'd be very disappointed with the atheological, pragmatic approach to preaching and to ministry that's so prevalent in typical Baptist churches. Everything Keach did was theological. His preaching was intensely theological. His, uh, the way that he ordered and administered the church was intensely theological. So I think that'd be one major critique that he would have. I think he'd be disappointed by the pervasive Arminianism. You know, the particular Baptists did not identify with the, or with the general Baptists. They didn't really regard themselves as part of the same group, even though they agreed on baptism. So if he, would, he would be disappointed with... Arminianism uh, among Baptists today. Uh, I think he'd be disappointed with a failure to be very clear on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that instead of a Christ-centered, grace-centered, gospel-preaching pulpit, there's a lot of moralism that's out there. Here's, you know, how to live. Here's how to have a better marriage. Here's how, not that that's wrong to teach on marriage. Certainly that's good and right. But when it's divorced from Christ and even the doctrine of justification, I think Keach would critique them, critique Baptists for a moralistic pulpit. Um, he would critique Baptists for uh, a failure to faithfully practice the regulative principle of worship. This would be an enigma to Keach, that you have Baptists doing things in worship that the Bible doesn't command. He would wonder why they're Baptists. That was the whole reason that particular Baptists became particular Baptists is because they said infant baptism's not commanded. <laughs> You know, we don't practice in worship whatever isn't commanded. So he'd be very baffled by Baptists doing things in worship uh, that are not commanded in the Scriptures. Also, just a laxity on the Sabbath day. I think he'd be appalled by the fact that so many Baptist churches, you know, he might notice they only meet for a brief period in the morning. The evening service has fallen off, and the morning part is very short. Um, I think he would be disappointed that sports, children's sports and activities have taken over so much of the day in many families and many churches. Uh, Keach was a, it's interesting, Keach got to his doctrine of the Sabbath differently than we might today be familiar with, but he was a strong Lord's Day Sabbatarian in the, in the end of it. And he believed that one full day and seven should be used for rest and worship unto the Lord. So I think he'd probably have mostly critiques. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Frankly, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good question. Dr. Holmes, uh, if someone's heard the name Benjamin Keach for the very first time and they're inter interested to learn more about him and his theology, where would you point them to first? 
Well, I think the first place that I would point people to, to to learn more about Benjamin Keach and just his life and his theology would be the biography that was written by Austin Walker entitled The Excellent Benjamin Keach. Uh, he, he, the first edition of that came out a few years ago. It's recently been uh, revised and a new edition of that has come out that's really superior to the first one. So I would, I would point folks to that because it gives just really a, an excellent play-by-play of his life and as, as Tom's been pointing out, just, just Keach did everything theologically. He was absolutely, you know, unfailingly biblical in what he did. And, and that biography points that out very well. The biography is not heady and academic. It's very accessible for anybody to read and enjoy. I think it's a very wonderful resource. If someone wanted to know more about Keach's theology specifically, uh, there's a, a scholar who's put forth a really excellent book on, on many aspects of Keach's theology named Jonathan Arnold. And uh, it was really his, his doctoral dissertation that's now been published. And so I would point them to, to his work and his research because it really gives a, an excellent overview and summary of what Keach believed theologically, uh, particularly his, his Reformed convictions uh, and, and the doctrines of grace and that sort of thing. Uh, so I would certainly start in those two places, but there are many good places to start. And then once you've, once you've gotten an introduction to Keach, then you want to read Keach because there's so much that, that he wrote that's so wonderful. And as we said, in a variety of literary types, whether it's allegories like his Travels of True Godliness, whether it's uh, his hymn texts, whether it's uh, his uh, works that he wrote that were more of a polemical nature, whether it has to do with the, the breach repaired in worship or whether it has to do with, with sermons, uh, about being faithful, understanding theology, whatever it was. A lot, a lot of what Keach wrote is so wonderful, and I would certainly point them to that, perhaps after they've gotten an introduction by reading a biography or something similar to that. Um, just kind of piggybacking off of the, the book, The Excellent Benjamin Keach, where did that nickname exactly come from? Or was that a nickname they was given, or did Austin Walker come up with that? No, uh, I, I don't off the top of my head know where that name comes from precisely, but it wasn't something that Austin just came up with. It was an actual name that was given to, to Keach mm. by, by someone who was referring to him and talking about his many wonderful attributes. But, mm. but at the moment, the name eludes me as to where okay. it actually arises from. Well, to, to conclude us, um, could you guys give us some final, or what final encouragements can you give us on the life and theology of the excellent Benjamin Keach? Dr. Holmes, you want to start? Encouragements? Well, I think really what's, what's so helpful about Keach is that uh, the Lord used him in a wonderful way, and yet in, in so many other ways, he was just ordinary. You know, he, he had a very humble... Uh, very simple upbringing, uh, a lot of a lot of close, uh, loving family who who brought him up and nurtured him in the Lord, even though they didn't necessarily uh, worship, you know, in a in a Baptist congregation. They still loved him. They still cared for him and nurtured him. And uh, even though he was not ever formally educated, uh, he applied himself. He he used the gifts that God had given him in wonderful ways and and just extraordinarily applied himself to study and reading and thinking. And, and processing through things, which is why he was able, when he was in his mid-teens, to, to actually to understand the gospel, to trust in Christ, to, to join a church, to be baptized by immersion, uh, and then shortly thereafter to begin you know, using his gifts uh, for the benefit and blessing of the church. Uh, so I, I, would, I just see Keach as a wonderful model of uh, 
dedication that, that just anyone, I think, can emulate if they will apply themselves and, and just yield themselves to the Lord to allow Him to fill them with His Spirit and use them in a wonderful way. Uh, Keach gives us hope that that can be done and done well. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Hicks? Yeah, I'll just say I think Keach is a, a model from early Baptist life of warm evangelical Calvinism. Uh, he learned this from Matthew Mead. He was converted under that same kind of warm evangelical preaching. And so what you have in Keech is a man deeply convicted on principle. He would not budge on truth. He got in debates with people. You know, he even got too feisty at certain points. But at the end of the day, Keech was about the life of the soul. He wasn't interested in a doctrinal shell that was his Christianity or uh, an outward uh, ceremonial observance. Uh, he was interested in real conversion and knowing Christ in your heart, an exalted Savior, crucified Lord, risen, loved by God's people from the heart that they live this way. And so I think one thing we could learn, what happened, by the way, is after Keech and the next generation as you move on, Cal the Calvinistic Baptist kind of crustified and hyper-Calvinism creep creeped in and things got bad for a while until... Uh, Evangelical Calvinism was recovered after that. But Keech is a great example. I would hold him up as a model for a pastoral heart, but one who's also a theologian and, uh, and someone that we can look to for those things. So, mm -hmm. Dr. Holmes, Dr. Hicks, thank you so much for doing this question and answer with us on the excellent Benjamin Keech. Thank you, brothers. And Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, thank you for allowing us to... Uh, have the episode here, and to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.